0: Hey, take your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn to Hosea chapter 7, book of Hosea chapter 7, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and if you get to all the funny-sounding one names, you've, you've gone too far. The prophet Hosea, he's one of the minor prophets, is what we call him anyways, because their books a lot of times are shorter, not all the time, but Hosea's message is very important, as we'll see tonight. Hey, read with me there in verse 1, if you're there. Hosea chapter 7, verse 1 says, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood and the thief cometh in and the troop of robbers spoileth without. See, Hosea, as I said, was a a minor prophet by our reckoning, but he, he ministered at a very important time in the history of the nation of Israel. See, he he prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, as he calls them here. And this northern kingdom of Israel, to really understand what's going on, you've got to go back a little ways in history. See, we know that the Israelites, they asked God to give them a king, and he, he reluctantly, reluctantly did so, gave them King Saul. And King Saul's reign was blessed for a time. He reigned for 40 years, but towards the end of his reign, he began to seek his own glory rather than God's. He began to lose the blessing of God in his life. And God chose instead to anoint King David to take his place. And David took the throne of Israel, and he he expanded the kingdom of Israel um, by conquest. And the Lord was really blessing David's ministry. And the Lord promised David that his descendants would always reign on the throne of Israel. And that through the line of David, that Jesus would eventually come to rule Solomon, David's son, takes over and God continues to bless. Solomon was one of the most wealthy and the most wise people in history. There were people coming from all over to, to see the, the blessed nation of Israel and all that God was doing there. Solomon, like Saul, began to slip in the later years of his reign. He began to allow the things of, things of this world to distract him from really serving God and honoring him and when he died he failed on to he failed to pass on to his son rehoboam the value of serving god rehoboam it says and he was advised by the the older wiser advisors of the court to say you know your father solomon he he taxed the people really harshly you should you should ease up on them a little bit if you want them to like you if you want your reign to start off in a prosperous way but Rehoboam didn't listen. He he said to the people, my father hath chastised you with whips. Talking about the high taxes, it says, but I will chastise you with scorpions. That's in 1 Kings chapter 12. So the people were not pleased with Rehoboam and God was not pleased with Rehoboam. And God comes to another man named Jeroboam from from the northern tribes. And God tells Jeroboam, look, you break away from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south you take the 10 northern tribes and you form the northern kingdom of Israel and God promises Jeroboam if you obey me you'll be blessed and protected seemed like a good deal for Jeroboam right but he didn't he didn't honor and obey and serve the lord as he he assumed the throne of the the northern tribes there which the, the southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom is called Israel. And like, like I said in this passage, oftentimes it's called Ephraim. As he assumes the throne there, he, he begins to think, you know, we've just broken away from the southern kingdom there. And if, if my people have to go to Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, you know, multiple times a year to worship the Lord, then how are they going to remain loyal to me, he said. So, so what he did is he made two golden calves, one in, one in Bethel in the south, one in Dan in the north of his kingdom so, so that the people could worship there instead of going and serving God. You know, he compromised for the sake of his kingdom. And from then on, you know, the southern kingdom went through a cycle. You know, they would have a righteous king, they would have a wicked king, and on and on it went. But the northern kingdom, from Jeroboam on, ever since he decided to build those golden calves and to to serve idols instead of the Lord, king after king of the northern kingdom of Israel just plunged that nation deeper and deeper into wickedness and rebellion. And here we come to Hosea chapter seven. It's about 250 years after Jeroboam broke away from the southern kingdom and they're still there in the depths of rebellion against God. The kingdom of Israel is in its final days there. See, we saw in verse seven that even though the Lord is, you know, proclaiming the sin of Israel, proclaiming His coming judgment on the nation of Israel, His desire really is for their restoration. At the beginning part of verse one, as we read, it says, "When I, the Lord, is speaking, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered." If you look even just a a page over or so in verse one of chapter six, it says the Lord is speaking again. It says, "Come." and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. Excuse me, the Lord is not speaking, the people are, uh, but they're speaking about the Lord's mercy. It says, he hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, in the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. So we see that this book of Hosea, and it's common among a lot of the minor prophets in this time period where um, the, the time of the Israel's wickedness is drawing to a close as they as they continue and continue to rebel against God, God's desire is not to judge them, not to punish them, but rather to bring them to restoration. But it's their own actions, their own choice to rebel against him that is preventing him from doing so. And this grieves the Lord. The way I think about it, I remember when when I was much younger, my, my sister and I, and let's be real here, it was more my sister than me, but when we'd be getting in trouble, my my mom would tell us not to do something, and like I said, mostly her, but my mom would tell us not to do something, and then if we continued, she would just start counting. She would say one, two, and we didn't want her to get to three. We didn't like what happened after she got to three, but God, in sort of the same way, he's, he's let them know that what they're doing is wrong, and he's continuing to send prophets like Hosea to let them know, okay, your time is running out to change your behavior or else punishment's coming. That's what a lot of these books of the prophets are talking about. And yet through it all, Israel is not suffering at the hand of a a cruel God. They're suffering because of their own actions and their own rebellion against God when all he wants to do is heal them and restore them. As much as we would want to say that we only want to serve and honor God, I think that if we were pressed, we, we would all have to admit that at one time or another, probably more times than we care to admit, that we have rebellion in our hearts, just like the kingdom of Israel did at this time. And in this chapter, we'll see that God uses four pictures to describe the rebellious hearts of Israel, four metaphors. And we're going to look at these here in a little bit. And really what God is doing, he's, he's lamenting. It grieves him greatly to see the rebellious hearts of the kingdom of Israel. You, you likely know that something that God asked the prophet Hosea to do is marry a woman that he knew would be unfaithful. And that likely would have been something very hard for Hosea to do is, you know, as he loved And cherished his wife like he was supposed to as he was faithful to her even as they they had three children together and to to know that there were some nights where she was who knows where with who knows whom and i think there likely would have been a time in hosea's life where he said god why did you ask me to marry this woman gomer was her name why did you ask me to marry gomer if she's just going to be unfaithful to me, all I do is love her and she's continually rebellious and unfaithful to me. But it's a picture of the way God feels when we choose rebellion over him over and over again. Can you imagine the heartbreak that Hosea must have felt when he thought about his wife, always choosing other men over him? And that's the heartbreak that God is feeling towards his people Israel in this chapter as he talks about the rebellion in their hearts. Let's talk about these four pictures of rebellion in the minutes to come. The first picture, as we'll see in verse 2, is a fiery oven. A fiery oven. Read with me in verse 2. It says, And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about, they are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker, who ceaseth from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the prince, princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners, for they have made ready their heart like an oven, whilst they lie in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night, in the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges." All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. See, the picture here, as God tells it, is of a baker who has prepared, prepared his dough the night before and he's, he's added the leaven so that it would rise overnight and he's prepared the oven so that he can cook that bread in the morning. And he goes to sleep thinking that all would be well. But as he sleeps, as he's waiting on that bread to rise and for the oven to prepare, the fire in the oven grows beyond his control. And he compares the fire in that oven to the sinful desires in his children's hearts, which, while they thought that they were manageable, that their sin was all right, was growing beyond their control without them even knowing. I think a lot of times we as Christians can think that we're the exception to what God says about sin. You know, we come to church and we hear preaching on sin And we read in in the Bible even about things that God says are sin. And we know that, right? But we still do it. We still think our sinful desires are okay. We still think, oh, nothing's going to come of it. It'll be all right just this once. But it reminds me of a verse in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 27 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes, clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? See, we shouldn't make the mistake that Israel makes here and see our sin is less than what it is. In verse 2, I want to highlight. It says, they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. See, they think that their sin is secret, but God sees everything. That they do. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You can take that verse one of two ways. See, God watches over us. He's always with us. He sees the good things that we do, and they won't go unrewarded. But all those things that we do when we think we're alone, the eyes of the Lord are there too. He sees the evil and the good. I think of David, who... He was a man after God's own heart, but he has a very famous mistake that we all remember him for, and that's his sin with Bathsheba. He desired Bathsheba. He, he saw her, saw that she was beautiful. He called her unto himself, and they sinned with one another, and he thought that he was free and clear until she wrote a letter back to him letting him know that she was going to have a, a baby. He had to cover up that sin. He had to call her husband Uriah back from the battlefield and give give him the opportunity to make people think it was his child. That didn't work. Uriah said, well, I'm not going to spend the night with my wife while all my compatriots, my, my, um, the people that are in the army with me, they're, they're all still serving. They're all out in the field. I'm not going to enjoy that luxury. So because of Uriah's sense of duty, David had to tell a, another lie. Even as Uriah returned to the battle, David sent with him a letter to the commander saying, send Uriah to the front lines and pull everyone back so that Uriah would be killed. Then David could swoop in and to all onlookers would just be like, he's, he's being courteous. He's being considerate, He's taking care of Bathsheba after her husband died. He got to marry her and the baby looked like it was his legitimately. And again, he thought he was free and clear until the prophet Nathan came to him and said, Thou art the man. He knew. He knew that what he'd done was wrong. And he repented, which is what we ought to do, like Pastor Roberts talked about this morning. You know, God is a a merciful God, a gracious God, who always forgives us when we come to him in our sin. And in Psalm 51, David is writing about this, and he, he says to God, against thee, thee only, Have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight? See, every time that we look over our shoulder to make sure the coast is clear, and then we take one more step into sin, and then another, and then another, every time we do so before the face of a holy God. And we continue allowing the fire of our sin to grow and grow because we fail to recognize our sin for what it is. See, in verse 3, it says they, says they make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. They've been lulled into the devil's deception that their sin is okay, but it's not okay. God says in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet. Forbidder. See, we need to be willing to call our sin what it is. To call our sin what God calls it. Not to excuse it, not to just say, oh, that fire will be okay overnight while we sleep. Sin is a snare, a trap of the devil that, that leads only to death and destruction. But just skip down with me to verse number seven, describing their situation still. It says, they are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. See, sin is a, it's a snare of the devil. It's a trap, and it leads to our death and destruction, but it's a trap that we don't have to stay in because God is merciful. God is gracious, and even as God is calling out their sin, calling them to recognize that the fire within their heart is growing beyond what they can handle. He says, there's none of them that calleth unto me. He, he still expresses his desire that they would just come to him, that they would just return. Return is a theme that we'll see throughout this chapter and throughout the book of Hosea. If you study the grace of God is the way for us to escape the fire of our sin. And I, I don't know everyone's spiritual condition here tonight. I think it's very possible that there could be one sitting here that doesn't know whether or not Jesus is their Savior. And I urge you to call unto God because you can't handle the fire of your sin. You're not okay to just sleep while it grows and grows and burns and burns. One day it'll catch you unawares you must call to Jesus for your salvation before it's too late. And even if you as a saved person have been caught in a cycle of rebellion against God where you think you're all right, you're not all right. We are never all right in our sin. But God's grace is still there. Just call unto him. We'll move on quickly. See, so we saw a fiery oven, but number two, we also see a foul cake. Verse eight says, Ephraim he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face. And they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. In the city of Austin, Texas, it, it's the capital of, capital of Texas where we're from, and I've had the, had the privilege to visit it a few times and It's not a place that I would ever really want to live, but if there's one thing that could convince me to live there, it's uh, a place called the Kirby Lane Cafe. Every time we go to Austin, we, we, we do our best to get over to the Kirby Lane Cafe. It's a, it, it's a breakfast place there, kind of like a Tex-Mex breakfast fusion. It, it's great food. They've got a lot of good options, but what they're really famous for is uh, their pancakes. See they've got these gigantic pancakes. They're like this big and this thick, and you can get them in all these different flavors. And, they're pretty good. I said, Like I said, if there's one thing that could convince me to move to Austin, Texas, it might be those pancakes. But I doubt that at the Kirby Lane Cafe, as famous as their pancakes are, as, as good as they are, I doubt that they've ever had someone come in there and say, hey, I, I like an order of the chocolate chip pancakes. But, but when you cook them, don't flip them over. I, I, I like my pancakes to where one side is real burnt, real crispy, where you can't hardly even cut it or anything. But then the other side is still doughy and raw. That's, that's the way I like my pancakes. I think if somebody went in there and ordered their pancakes that way, then the waitress would go into the kitchen and they would all laugh at him, right? I'm not sure of anyone who would order their food that way. And this is the illustration that God uses here. He calls him a cake that is not turned. It's the same type of deal. It's a cake that is on the fire on one side and they fail to flip it over. So it gets all burnt on one side and it's still all doughy on the other. And the cause for this God says, is that Ephraim mixed himself among the people. See, we, we heard a little bit this morning from Pastor Roberts that as the Israelites moved into the promised land, they were, they were meant to be separate. They were meant to drive out all the unclean Canaanite people and, and to live for the Lord. But In many instances, as they disobeyed God, as they rebelled against him, they they allowed the heathen people to have an influence in their nation. They intermarried with these people, and it caused a lot of problems for them. They mixed themselves among the people, as it said, and as a result, God calls them a cake that is not turned. See, a, a cake that is like this, a pancake, if you will, that's all burned on one side and all doughy on the other, doesn't matter which side it is, the whole thing is useless. It's not good for anything. Psalm 106.35 says that the Israelites were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. They allowed the, the world to have an influence upon them, yet this is not what God wanted for them. You know, he, said, he says to us, he said this to the Israelites, he says it to us today as Christians, he says come out from among them, the world, and be ye separate. See, he calls us a peculiar people. And the reason for this peculiarity, the reason for this separation or holiness, as the Bible calls it, is so that through the way that we choose to live our life in a holy way, we point the world to the holiness of God. See, this is God's desire for us, that we live distinctly from the world around us, but we, like Israel, oftentimes allow the world to have too much influence in our lives. See, we can't decide which way we want to go, and as a result, we end up like that cake, all burned on one side, all doughy on the other, because we try to have both, right? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon or the world. See, in verse 9, It says that strangers are devouring Israel's strength and he knoweth it not. Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. His time is running out because of his continual desire to fraternize with the unclean people around him. His time is running out and he doesn't even realize it. See, I'm not sure what kind of influence you're allowing the world to have in your life, but I pray you're not like Israel. In verse 10, it says, the pride of Israel testifieth to his face." And they do not return to the Lord, their God, nor seek him for all this. Israel, he's so full of pride, the Lord says, that he won't turn to God. He sees that there's a problem, right? You know, he's suffering the judgment of God. We read back in verse one that there's robbers and thieves and they're suffering all kinds of hardship as a result of their own actions, but their own pride causes them to refuse to turn to God, refuse to call on him, return to him. I think that maybe some of us need to lay aside our pride, just like we heard this morning, and return to God. To stop allowing the world to have influence in our own lives and to return. First Kings eighteen twenty one, the prophet Elijah is talking to the people of Israel, says, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. We need to choose. We need to choose to return to God, and even still we see that desire that He has that we return and be with Him. I'll move I'll move on quickly. Number three, we had the the fiery cake or the fiery oven, we had the foul cake, and now we have a foolish dove. Verse eleven says Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. The word silly here it it means spacious, it means wide open. And heart refers to discernment. It refers to our inner man, our ability to, to see what is wrong and to follow that path. And essentially, God here is calling the nation of Israel an airhead. Says He's, got, he, he's silly. There's nothing in his head. It, it's wide open, empty space. I think of something particularly airheaded that I've done in my past is when I was very young, I was... I'm not sure how young, but I was just tall enough to be able to see over the top of the bathroom counter and reach, reach the drain of the sink, feel around in there. There were the little metal prongs that stuck out, keep you from dropping the toothpaste cap down the P-trap, and I would be able to feel those. And I was messing with them, and I realized, hey, those bend a little bit. And like I said, I don't know how young I was, pretty young, but I decided to push all those straight down. And see, when you do that, they can't really, can't really do what they're meant to do. So, of course, my parents noticed, right? And my sister was much younger, much smaller than me. And so right when they saw it, they, they knew that it was me. They confronted me about it, right? They said, did you push the little prongs down in the sink drain? And I said, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Because, you know, in how young I was, how airheaded I was, if you will, I thought that I was able to pull one over on them, right? Right? Even though they're the parents in the home, they know that it was neither one of them that would do something so silly as pushing the sink prongs down. They knew it wasn't my sister who couldn't even see over the counter at that time. They knew it was me. But for two weeks, I carried that lie out. Every time they would come to me saying, did you push the sink prongs down? I would say, no, it's a mystery. Until finally I fessed up. And even still, I said, I can't believe y'all didn't figure it out. And they were like, really? Yeah, we figured it out. It wasn't that hard to figure out. But in my false pride, in my silliness, I thought that I was even close to capable of pulling one over on my parents. And in the same way, these verses tell us that Israel had the same attitude about God. See, they're rebelling against him, even though he's God and they're not. Verse 13, at the end, and I'm hurrying, it says, though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Verse 15 says, Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. See, this is a people who'd been led out of the nation of Egypt as captives by God. They'd seen seas parted. They'd seen battles miraculously won, just like the one we heard about this morning. God was the God who had continually taken care of them and promised to bless them if they would just obey. And every single victory they had gotten what had been because of the hand of God upon them. And yet they imagined that somehow they could win a victory against him. They imagined that somehow their rebellion against him would get somewhere. See, we do the same thing. We know that God has all power. We know that he knows everything. We know that he hung the stars in space, that he created us down to the individual atoms that make us up. And we know that he sent Jesus to come and die for us. And yet somehow we are still foolish enough to rebel against him. It makes no sense. We still call to Egypt and go to Assyria seeking, seeking the world's answers for our problems just like they did in verse 11. We're so foolish. And in verse 14, we see still God's desire that they would return to him. It says, and they have not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds, they assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. My time runs out, now. I'll move forward. But see, even in all their foolishness, even in their continual rebellion against him, that makes no sense. God still wanted them more than anything to just cry unto him with their whole hearts. And that's what God wants from you today. Verse four, or point four, and like I said, I'll hurry. In verse 16, we see a faulty bow, a faulty bow. Says they return, but not to the most high. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. God is calling Israel out for making a false show of repentance. He says they return. They act like they're coming back to me act like they want to serve me. But really, what they're like is when a hunter were, if a hunter were to take his bow and everything looks fine, he knocks an arrow, he pulls it back, and the bow snaps. And it's good for nothing. Everything looked fine with it, but something within the, the inner integrity of the bow, it was, it was not good. And in the same way, God is not interested in empty gestures of pen. Of penitence. He's, not, he's not, he doesn't just want our alligator tears. He wants us in our hearts to desire fellowship with him. He wants us in our hearts to turn to him wholeheartedly. First Samuel sixteen seven says, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. See, God knows that very soon, Israel's sin is going to catch up with him. He doesn't have much time left. Israel is continuing in his sin, continuing to rebel against God, but his time is running out. And soon God says he's going to be nothing more than a laughing stock, a derision in the land of Egypt. And still, even as they rebel, even as they continue to make decision and decision that flies in the face of the God who had saved them, he still wanted them to return. He still desired that they would turn to him. I think of Joel chapter 2, in a very similar situation, Joel ministers to the nation of Israel. In verse 12 and 13, he says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him from evil. I'm almost done. We made it through the chapter, and we saw these four pictures of the way that Israel continued to rebel against God, and eventually, we know from history that Israel was overtaken by the people of Assyria. They never listened to Hosea's message. They never returned to God. They continued to rebel and rebel, and as a result, they were invaded by the Assyrians and scattered among the Gentiles. Well, what about you? You don't have to continue in your rebellion. I can't presume to know what's in your heart or in your life. I can't presume to know how the Holy Spirit may or may not have touched your heart as, I, as I've spoken. I hope he has. But you don't have to continue in rebellion. You still have the chance to return. Let's bow our heads So we just think about things for just a little longer. You know, we talked a lot about our sin tonight, and I'm not sorry about that. God takes our sin very, very seriously, and we ought to as well. And, but we also saw over and over and over again that God still wanted them to return. He was still a God of mercy. He still wanted that relationship with him, and we know that the God is, our God is the same today we know that if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so why would we continue maybe as we have the invitation here in a few moments you'd you'd say there in your seat God I don't want my sin to continue growing out of hand I know I need you to take care of it for me maybe you've been too involved with the things of this world and you want to make a choice to serve God Maybe you want to stop being so foolish and really and truly in your heart make a decision to return to God after all this time. Hey, like I said, I don't know what's in your heart. But I know that these altars are open and if God is moving in your heart, don't ignore it like Israel did. Return. Return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful for your word, Lord. I'm thankful for the way that it challenges and convict us, Lord. Forgive us for our rebellion, Lord. Forgive us for all those times where we so foolishly rebel against you, Lord. It makes no sense that after all the things that you've done for us, we would ever even presume to do so, but Lord, we do it every day. Lord, and I'm thankful that you are a God of mercy, a God who forgives, Lord, a God who desires that we would just simply return. Lord, and maybe there's one tonight who's not sure that you're their Savior, who's not sure that they've ever taken care of their sin. But Lord, I'm thankful that they can take care of that even today. Lord, as they call in the name of Jesus, I I pray that you'd move in hearts tonight as we begin our invitation, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.